I'm Rachel Hollis, and I've built a multi-million dollar media company with a high school diploma and the free information I found on the internet. In the 15 years that I've been building and scaling my company, I have become deeply passionate about helping other entrepreneurs to do the same. So each week, I'll be sharing tangible and tactical advice and inspiring interviews with the same intention. These are the tools to change your life and your business. This is the Rise Podcast. So I tend to not prepare for these things because I always think it's more interesting when you don't. Yeah. Um, but I think there's something super interesting. I was, you know, thinking about speaking to you today and you're someone that I have admired for so long and a mentor and a teacher that I've had for so many years, even though you don't know who I am. Um, and so I thought, I was like, oh, I'm going to go look at a notebook that I had from back in the day. And I didn't remember the date I had gotten to go see you and Rob Bell at Wanderlust in oh. LA. Oh, that was such a great day. Wow. Such a good day. It was such a good day. And I thought, I want to go dig in and kind of see where I was at at that point and kind of what I learned from you and the notes that I took. And I don't believe in coincidences. And I'm always sort of looking for the universe to tell me something. But that event happened on May 26th. 2016. No. Yes. And for people who are listening, we are recording this. Oh my God. 2020. So I was like, what in the world that, I don't know. I just thought that that was so special. It takes me very much back to that. That was a very heightened moment in my life as well. Like that was, that was, um, a month after Rhea was diagnosed with terminal cancer. It was like, I was about like in the next week I was I was going to be leaving my marriage to go and be with her. Like I can remember, it's one of those when you're super alert and super awake moments and super frightened, Um, but also very much alive. So I'm glad you were there in the room. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great day. Uh Were you um, in the midst of releasing Big Magic or had it already come out? I feel like it had it had already come out and it was about to go into paperback um, in okay. about a month from then. So okay. yeah, it, it was already in the world. So for, uh, I would love to sort of talk about that book. That book has been so incredibly impactful. Um, and if I had a dollar for every person I've told to read that, I you know, would it's not possible, have to It's possible, Rachel, that I have a dollar for every person you've told to read <laughs> That is that is I possible. Think that's how yes. work. So thank you. <laughs> True. I really appreciate um, that. <laughs> yes. Um, and I so I was digging through my notes of that day, and so much of it feel like that conversation was about what um, this idea inside of creativity and enchantment and following that um, calling inside yourself. So I would love to start there because I think so many of the listeners are creators and dreamers and want to build different things. And I know that's kind of going back to the past, but I don't um, know. It's still very much present in my imagination. So (laughs) yeah, let's do it. Um, So the, the specific things that I have from that day is first off a conversation about fear Mm. and fear of, um, what it means to have this thing inside of yourself. So I have, um, my audience is predominantly women and I tend to attract a lot of women who are mothers who have kind of found themselves in a narrative and maybe for the first time ever are stepping back and going, whoa, Mm -hmm. whoa, how did I sort of get here? And what is this? And what do I want to build? And oh my gosh, I'm a grown up and actually have the opportunity to build this thing and make it the life that I want. Yeah. And with that comes the fear, the fear right. of what other people think of disappointing others. So could you speak to your thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the first thing that I would say is that one thing I can tell you for certain after years and years and years of creative work and also living a life where I've made a lot of scary choices um, is that all of us, who create anything in the world, whether it's on the huge scale or whether it's on the small intimate scale, we always begin at the same exact point, 
So everybody begins at the moment of inspiration, and which is a sacred moment and a holy moment and an exciting moment. And it's, it's a moment where you feel as though your imagination has been captivated by an idea. Um, and in that, you know, I like to think, um, and it's purely speculation because I don't know how the universe works any better than anyone else does, but just for the purposes of how I live, I like to think that ideas have consciousness and they have will and they, they love to interact with humans because we have the antenna to hear them and feel them. And then we also have the labor and the creativity to bring them forth. So I think of creativity as a, as a really mysterious union between a human being's labor and the mysteries of inspiration. And the mysteries of inspiration, we will never quite know what that is. But we all experience it the same way, right? The hairs go up in the back of your neck. You, you feel a little sick to your stomach, a little nauseous, a little thrilled. You, you can't sleep. You get jitter. You know, you just get this. It's like falling in love. You get this excitement of, of the moment of inspiration. And that's, I always think of as the moment of invitation. When an idea comes to you and says, do you want to work with me? Do you want to work with me and should we make something together? Um, me, the mystery, and you, the human. And if you say no, that conversation ends very quickly. <laughs> and the idea, and that's fine. Like I've said no lots of times um, to ideas because I was doing something else or it wasn't the right time. So it's saying no is completely legit, but it closes off that invite. And then the idea will go to find somebody else and, and it'll keep going until it finds somebody who will manifest it, right? But if you say yes, the very, very next sensation that you will experience is terror. And that is going to be true whether it's the first time you've ever said yes to inspiration or whether you're writing your 20th book or starting your 15th company or whatever, or, or embarking on a new relationship, whatever this thing is that you're saying yes to, the very next thing, you can set your clock to it. It is a law of nature. The next thing that you're going to feel is fear. And the reason for that is that our creativity lives in a very recent part of our evolutionary brain. And it's still something that we're learning how to use. It's only about 100,000 years old, maybe a little bit older than that. But your fear is like the deepest evolutionary cortex of your brain. And it has one job. And it's one job is to, alive. is to keep you alive. And specifically to keep you alive by preventing you from doing new things. Because your fear, if it doesn't know what something is, then it has an immediate toggle switch that like sounds the klaxon horns like wah, 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 that says like shut it down because, and this is your fear talking, I don't know what that thing is and I don't know what the outcome of that thing is going to be. And in order to keep you safe, I have to make sure that you never do anything where I fear cannot perceive what the outcome is going to be. And creativity is a realm where you will never know what the outcome is going to be. And so if you're going to live a creative life, you will be in a constant dance with fear because your fear will always be like, shut it down. This is going to end in your death. Like this is definitely going to end in, you're writing poetry now. This will end in our death because I don't even know what that is, you know? And so for me, my whole life of creativity has been about establishing a really loving synaptic conversation between my creative mind and my fearful mind and not trying to throw fear away or kick it out or show it who's boss or do any of the stuff that our culture teaches around fear because it doesn't work. Um, anytime I've ever tried to throw fear away, it comes back twice as strong because then it gets a signal that there's real trouble, right? So I just talk to it very lovingly and, um, and constantly and throughout the entire creative process. It's not something I do once or twice or 10 times. It's an everyday thing where I have to say to fear, I understand and respect completely why you're reacting like this because you don't know how this is going to end. But I've written a few poems before and so far no one has died from them. <laughs> So um, I'm just, you just speak in this really reassuring voice and you explain to it what you're doing um, and that you're going to continue doing it and that you allow that the fear gets to be there. So it's, I think what happens is that we have this misunderstanding that you're going to get to some point in your life where you're going to be fearless. And I think that the only fearless people in the world are either fully enlightened guru masters of whom there are few um, or sociopaths of whom there are many. Um, and, the, <laughs> and the rest of us are just going to have to learn how to feel that and yeah. to work with it and around it and through it, but never, never without it. So I guess, yeah. I guess what I want to say is I just want to normalize the, the fear experience and tell you that I go through it constantly. I expect that I will always go through it. 
Um, I don't want to be a fearless person because um, I I don't think that's really a full person and unless, you know, as I say, someday I achieve full enlightenment, in which case <laughs> I'll let you know. But until then, I've just resigned myself and accepted to the fact that it's just part of the, the human psychological landscape and it's going to be with me. And it's proof, uh, Rob Bell, our friend Rob Bell would say, the fear, the butterfly in your stomachs, um, butterfly in your stomach is proof that you've got skin in the game. And, and that's, that's all it is. Yeah. So that day, uh, what I had gone to see for those of you who are listening, what I had gone to see Liz speak at was imagine, gosh, I don't know, a few hundred people in a room in a yoga studio. (laughs) And you were sort of leading us through these thoughts, you and Rob. And one of the exercises that you had us do, which was so powerful, and I think would be really powerful for uh, people who are listening is to write a letter from our fear. That's it. Yes. Uh-huh. To ourselves from our fear. So yeah. do you remember that exercise and can you talk them yeah, through that? Yeah, I've taught it a bunch of times. I mean, it's incredibly simple, but the, but it's more about the spirit that I try to get people into when they receive that letter. And that whole workshop that I did that day is essentially like a truth and reconciliation um, and, and peace accord hearing that you're going to have within your psyche between you and all these divergent voices within yourself so that you can all be integrated and be and get along with each other rather than being at war with each other. So I always say to people, you know, you're going to, the first letter of the day has to be the letter from fear because it's the first thing you're going to feel <laughs> like we have to deal with it. It's the first thing in the room. And, um, and it's quite simple. I mean, if it were you writing the letter, the prompt would be that I would give you the first two lines of the letter and, and the first two lines would be, dear Rachel, I am your mm-hmm. fear and this is what I want to tell you. And then you just allow your fear to speak. And as far as I'm concerned, every single sentence can begin with the, the phrase, I am afraid. Um, I'm yeah. afraid that, or I am afraid of, I'm afraid that, I'm afraid of. And you just list it. This is not fancy writing. This is just really visceral. And the way that I, I teach people to receive it is to imagine that I always say, imagine if you can, that you come from a dysfunctional family. <laughs> I know Crazy. I you're going to have to reach. Like. <laughs> yeah. You've read about them in books. You've seen it in movies. Imagine that you come from a family who doesn't know how to communicate well around emotions. And imagine that you are the first member of the family to have ever gotten well, emotionally well and emotionally healthy. And imagine that you have now gone back to the family and you want to make peace with every member of the family. And you're having it basically a truth and reconciliation hearing. And I say, like, it's a family of everyone's tired. Everyone is shredded. But there's this one person who is kind, peaceful, and is able to listen. And all your job is to do when you write that letter from fear is to not interrupt it, to not try to correct it to not try to override it, but to just allow it to speak and to respectfully, nonviolently listen. And I give people five or six minutes and they write the letter and then I tell them how to sign it. Sincerely, your fear. <laughs> and that's it. And what's what, what I find remarkable about it is, is, you know, fear governs and guides and terrifies so much of our lives. But um, the reality is very few people are able to fill the five minutes. <laughs> Like once you yeah. actually sit back and say, okay, let's hear what you have to say fear and you don't interrupt, it doesn't, it doesn't usually have that much to say. And the things that it's afraid of are few, specific, and maybe reasonable. You know, um, I'm afraid I'm going to run out of money. I'm afraid my family is going to die. I'm afraid this isn't going to be a success. And you just let it speak. And then once, and then that's it. Once it's been allowed to speak, you say, thank you so much for sharing, and then we can actually move on with heading toward creativity. Because I think more than anything, fear, like all of us, just wants to feel like it's being respectfully heard. And once it's respectfully heard, I find that it tends to quiet down. I What I find wild, like I didn't, I, I remember this day and I've actually talked, there's a, another letter that you had us write from Persistence. And I've talked about that a ton. I wrote about it in one of my books. Um, but I didn't remember this letter from fear. And what I find that is crazy is I'm writing a letter as someone who was an author of fiction, who wanted to write in a new category Uh and was terrified of that. Mm. And I don't even remember having these fears, but I'm, I read this letter today and I got chills because 
I'm I'm wanting to write the book that would become the biggest book I've ever done. Uh-huh. And I didn't even remember being so terrified of doing this thing mm-hmm. and not doing this thing and leaning into a new direction. So um, it's amazing. I love when you sort of see these, um, when you see the patterns of your life sort of come together again of like, oh, I didn't remember that this was a thing. And so I want to encourage listeners so much that even, I mean, I'm an Enneagram three, I'm an achiever. I'm like, Oh, I want to check all the boxes. And I don't even know that I consciously would have allowed myself at that time to hold my fear Mm. or to hold space for it. Mm -hmm. And so I would just say to people who are listening, if you don't feel like this, Oh, I don't have any, there's nothing really it's worth God. It's worth 10 minutes to just see where this leads you because yeah. it's so powerful. If only so you can go back and look at it four years later yes. and be yes. like, wow, look what I was so Crazy. terrified of back then. Yes. Um, yes. And, and look what has come to pass. Um, yeah. And, you know, the fear is really like the guardian of the bridge um, that says, you, you know, none shall pass here. <laughs> or like, I will not <laughs> let you by. And, and really all it wants is, is to tell its tale, right? So if you're yeah. on the journey for creativity and you get to the bridge and the fear is like the troll that says you're not allowed to pass, the simplest way to quiet it down is to sit down and make it a cup of tea and say, tell me your story. Tell me yeah. what you're afraid of. And then it, it, it will let you go by. Um, it's mm-hmm. quite miraculous. <laughs> yeah. I truly didn't. I mean, I remember that day is so special, but I couldn't have told you why I remember it as uh-huh. special. And I'm like, oh, and then you went and wrote the biggest book of your career. That's- uh-huh. <laughs> uh, um, the next thing that we talked about that day was enchantment and this idea of what is enchantment and what does that look like in our lives and how does that, how would you describe that to people who aren't familiar with? your terminology. I've actually sort of refined my um, description of it even since that workshop. I used to think of it as a synonym for magic. um, And I used to try to get people to look into themselves and see when was like, where is their sense of enchantment? When was the last time they encountered it? Um, And then again, you would write yourself a letter from your sense of enchantment, often saying, Hey, Liz. Hey, Rachel. I haven't seen you in a long time. <laughs> you know, the last time we were together was when we were at the ocean that time and we saw the stingray or like whatever happened. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, a, a shorthand version of how I used to describe enchantment would be it's that intake of breath that you can't, that intake of breath that is involuntary at the sight of wonder um, or amazement. And that that is also part of your part of your nature. And it's something that can be cultivated. And when your enchantment writes you a letter, it's often very clear um, about telling you what it likes, who it likes to be with, what brings it to life, um, where, you know, who, who walks into the room and enchantment leaves, <laughs> you know, that's a really good one to know. Like who, when you see like enchantment will tell me, like when I see this person's name come up on caller ID, I leave. So Liz, you just need to know <laughs> that you can either have me in the room or you can have this person on the phone, but we both can't be in the room at the same time because this person kills, just sends me away. I won't be with them. Um, and But now what I think of enchantment as more is, um, I think of it as the steady, slow hum of well-being. And it's such an elusive thing for people to feel and particularly for women to feel because women carry so much anxiety, even women whose lives look on the outside as though they've got it made in the shade um, are, are vibrating at this incredibly high dizzying frequency of constant anxiety. And now for me, where I find my enchantment is when I can get, when I'm relaxed, it's almost a synonym for relaxed. Um, and, and that's because that's when creativity comes to me more easily. Um, so now I feel like I don't have to chase wonderful experiences. I don't have to see like sparkle unicorns jumping over rainbows in Nepal. (laughs) I mean, that's how I chased enchantment through my twenties and thirties was like chasing heightened experiences, you know? Mm. Um, and now I just know that if I am at ease and well within myself, then my creativity will flow very nicely. Um, that that's all it takes um, is is to just. So now I would just say your enchantment is the thing that makes you feel well. And I'm 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 very specific about the difference between feeling well and feeling good. 
um, because we we chase a lot of things that make us feel good, but they don't necessarily make us feel well. <laughs> um, and there's a really big difference between feeling good and feeling well. Um, feeling good is fleeting and um, and often comes with consequences. <laughs> yes. Yes. As a lot of us know, like chasing that thing that's going to make you feel really good instantaneously is also going to diminish and vanish instantaneously and leave you with I don't know, a broken marriage or a big credit card bill or an addiction or, you know, like, or all three. Um, but feeling well, feeling well, like what makes you feel like your shoulders aren't up in your ears? What makes you feel like your stomach doesn't have twists in it? Um, who can you be with and present in the room and you can actually breathe fully and let your guard down? That's enchantment to me now. That's what I think of as, as the nirvana, the most magical place. Because we have so few experiences with feeling well, we are suspicious that that's boring or bland or vanilla, um, but actually it's really yummy. <laughs> it is the number one question of women in my community. It is the number one thing that women struggle with is anxiety. It's something I, it was debilitating for me for a lot of years and I yeah. did a lot of work to figure out how to live with it and to, um, to, be on offensive with it instead of just waiting until I was in a full-blown anxiety spiral. Um, but one of the things, like I, I got so many, um, emails and letters about this over the years and I didn't have, I knew that I couldn't give each individual person advice without context of what, you know, each individual life was. And so I just sort of started speaking to simple things that had helped me therapy and moving my body every day and um, not having 27 espressos in a single day to sort of help me jack me up and kind of allow me to do this work. So those were really surface level um, ways to that I was able to deal with anxiety. But at the root, I think so often, and maybe this is a sweeping generalization, but um, when women tell me that they're struggling with anxiety, the question I always ask is, who are you trying to please? Mm. So mm. who are you, um, mm. who do you think you're supposed to be? Right. Who are you trying to live into? Right. Like, what is this dissonance between who you are at your core and what you've been told that you are supposed to emulate or have the body of, or be the right. kind of mother or be the kind of wife or be a mother or wife at all? Right. Um, and I'd, I'd be so curious to hear if you have a perspective on that. That's such a good question. Um, I mean, the question you asked me, but even more so the question you ask them. Um, and, ooh, wow, I feel like that's a real gift. Um, the question of who are you trying to please, to even know that that's what you're doing. Um, I think for many women, it's so ingrained. It's in the groundwater. It's in the breast milk that you're drinking as a child. It's in, you know, it's like, it's like hormones and beef. It's just, it's everywhere. You know, it's like you're taking it in um, all the time to be pleasing, that it is your job to be pleasing in all ways. Um, and that almost killed me. Um, that almost killed me as anybody who read the first section of Eat, Pray, Love, Knows. <laughs> um, that's the closest I've ever gotten to death, um, was, trying to, was trying to stay in marriage, trying to stay in a marriage that, was, um, that looked from the outside like everything I had been taught was, um, was what I was supposed to want. And I ticked all the boxes and I got the husband and I got the house and I got, you know, we were about to have kids. And instead of having kids, I had a, a nervous breakdown because my, my internal nature um, just could not live in that world, in that world that I had created comparing that I had created very obediently and very innocently um, in order to be pleasing. And, and, and I look back at that younger version of myself now, and I just want to take her, little chubby 29 year old cheeks <laughs> in my hand and say, good guess, you know, good guess. And I, if there's just nothing else that anyone who is listening takes away from this, if you can look at your younger self and by younger self, I mean 
your younger self from last week, <laughs> your younger <laughs> yeah. self from last night, um, all the way back to your younger self from earliest memory. And you see all those stupid things she did and all those wrong moves she did and all those wrong people she loved and all those wrong decisions that she made and all those wrong people that she trusted. And if you can just look her in the eye and say, good guess, good guess, because it's all it is, you know, is that you, you know, were dropped as souls into these bodies, landed into our families, our cultures, trained up learned up, you know, taught that, and, and then it would be a very good guess to then go out in the world and be like, this is what's going to make you happy. This is what I've been shown. How in the world would you know any different? You know? Um, and the only way, I mean, the great awakener is always suffering, you know? So some of that anxiety, I mean, my anxiety was medicated, um, you know, but it was also my great, it was also the, the chisel of awakening for me. Um, because there was no way that I was going to radically change the direction of my life unless I was in more so much pain that I was almost going to die, um, and that's and that's where I was at. Um, and I've I've also just discovered um, when I end up back in a doctor's office because I've gone on and off antidepressants a few times in my life and, and anti-anxiety medication. So now I'm at this place where. Um, and I've been off it for long periods of time. And then, you know, I'll find myself wanting to go talk to a doctor about getting more. And I, and, and again, everyone needs to, to chart their own path on this. And it's in no way a universal prescription. But for me, I'll just tell you in a very personal way. If I'm in a doctor's office asking for Xanax again, then I'm lying to somebody. I'm lying to myself about something. Um, mm. That is now as clear to me as day. And there's something that's happening in my life and I have not yet found the courage, courageous voice to speak it. And so instead I want to medicate it. And so I need to figure out what I'm lying about. <laughs> and uh, that's very painful, but it gets me out of those doctor's offices um, because, you know, I can be like, Oh, I've made a, I've made another good guess. <laughs> not I've made another mistake. Not I've made yeah. another fucking wreckage. Not I'm another car wreck. Like, oh, I see that I've just made another really good guess. And my mm -hmm. incredible suffering and anxiety is a clue that that was the incorrect direction for my life to go in. And now I'm going to have to do that hard thing again of changing it again, which mm -hmm. I'm willing to do now. And I'm now at the age of 50, I can say I do that a lot faster. I've gotten a lot less um, accepting of suffering. I used to think that there was a certain amount of, of suffering that I was required to endure just to be like a decent person. And, and now I'm like, oh no, <laughs> uh, no, this isn't, you know, and the most powerful words a woman can ever express, this isn't working for me. Yeah. This isn't working for me. There's no blame in it. There's no shame in it. It's just like, yeah, I'm dying here. And I, and I've also realized like, I really do, I'm a pretty simple organism in a way. I only really do have two settings. I'm either tanking or I'm thriving. And now when I start tanking, I'm like, okay, something's wrong. Like I've taken a good guess. I've taken a really good guess and I've, and I've headed into the dark wood of error. <laughs> and now I got to backtrack and I might need to end some relationships and I might need to change some plans and some people's feelings might get hurt and I might have to cry a lot, but I'm, I'm going back because I actually now know that when I'm going in the proper direction and I'm not telling any lies, I do very well. Um, and I do very well immediately. And I have that Xanax prescription in my cabinet and I never even open it, you know, so that's all it takes. All it takes is radical truth telling and the willingness to continually change direction based on your wrong guesses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it, that what you're saying is so simple and like rings like so true. And then I also know that the, I'm sure that you get it as a criticism. And I know any woman who would say something, the response would be, you're being selfish. Like you're being selfish. Well, to yeah. That I, my perception is that you have done the work and have evolved to a place where you don't hold what, whether or not someone thinks you're selfish. But if you're listening to this and you're a 33-year-old mother of two and the idea of, like, I think uh, from my own, my own past, it took me a very long time to understand 
that what I wanted for my life was the most important, that what my husband wanted for me or what my parents wanted for me or even what my children would wish for me is not as important or valuable as what I want. And that is maybe, I don't know if your community would say this, but my community that that's radical. That's a radical notion for them. Oh, it's radical. They should <laughs> want something for themselves yeah. without anybody else getting uh, to to have an opinion inside of that. Well, I think selfish is the most powerful word of tribal shaming, and tribal shaming is the most powerful means of controlling people. Um, and and so also, who's calling you that? impacts um how heavily it lands on you right so like if somebody's calling me that in an instagram comment i'm like yeah whatevs you know like if a family member is calling me that um that's more that's more troubling and that's more painful like how close you are to me is is what's gonna is what's gonna really harm it but i think um that the word selfish is is a way to tell is really just a way to tell women to stay in their lane um, and, and it's a very powerful tool of control. I stayed in my very unhappy marriage for probably three more years of my precious life. Um, because that word used against me could just put me right back in my lane. You know, it's like, you know, it got me, it sat me right back down on my heels, you know, um, until, until really it was a choice of, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this facetiously, but I am either going to kill myself or I have to leave. Um, and and so I think what I've come to now is I'm not so worried about that word anymore because I know my own heart and I know that I'm a, a kind and loving and generous person whose whose intention would never be to cause harm to anybody. Um, I also know that I'm 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 in Earth School and I'm a student and I'm learning. <laughs> so there's a mercy that I show to myself on that. Um, but I also know that I mean I don't know this, but this is how I see it. I, I feel like if I had to take a guess at at how the universe works in this way, my own personal theology is that I was given one soul to take stewardship over and to take care of, and it's my own. It would appear to be because it's the one I spend all my time with, right? So it would appear that this is the one that's my responsibility because I've had it for my whole life, and 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 I don't remember asking for, it, but I was given. They gave me this body. They gave me these talents. They gave me these mental illnesses. They gave me these obstacles. They gave me these character defects. Um, they gave me this whole sort of software system. And I like to think, when I say they, I mean like whatever mysterious forces run the universe. I like to think that they gave Liz to me, to the one we call Liz, that they gave her to me to take care of because they believed that I could. Um, and so I like to show that I can by taking really good care of her. And I didn't always do that. I, uh, what I used to do was take care of everybody else <laughs> so that they would say that I was good and a good girl and definitely that they would not say that I was selfish. Um, but my stewardship, I don't think my stewardship is over everyone's opinions. I think my stewardship is over this being. And I've also learned that if I don't take care of her, no one else can. I mean, nobody else Stewardship means I accept that this one is mine. Um, and a lot of my um, good guesses <laughs> earlier in my life were about trying to find people who would do that for me, trying to find people who would take stewardship over me and keep me safe and keep me happy and keep me reassured and keep me feeling good. And some people made really mighty efforts. It's not like I've, you know, I've had some really lovely people in my life who have certainly gone the extra mile to try to take care of me, but I don't think anymore that it's their job. Um, and, and just even in the last few years, something about turning 52 and having really curated a relationship with this being that we call Liz and the amount of affection that I have for her now, um, this real sense of friendship. Like we talk a lot about self-love, but it's such a lofty aim and it's so high and out of reach friendship would just be great. Like a sense of, like just a general sense of friendliness towards yourself. And I'm a really good friend, you know? So now my friendliness is primarily toward her. Um, and an example of that is a, a relationship that I ended um, 
where I, it, it wasn't working for me. <laughs> you know? I can just put it very, and I don't need to go into the details about who it was or when it was. Um, but I could feel myself going into that lockdown mode of you've got to make this work. You've got to make this work because you've put so much effort into it already because people's hopes are up, because your hopes are up, because you're living together now, because you've come this far, because you want to prove that you can, you know, all of these like heavy cinder blocks of, of responsibility on myself. And I just remember one night um, trying to explain in a very sober way, trying to explain to this person how to look after me when I was feeling anxious um, and and not in a hysterical way, but just really almost like the operating instructions. Like this is how you this is how you operate a Liz. <laughs> if you want to have one in your life, if you want to have one in your life, she comes with all these great things, but she also has this thing. But I also know myself well enough to know that I'm going to give you three things you can do that will totally work and make your Liz feel better instantly. And these are what they are. You know, like it was really like just breaking it down in the simplest way. And, um, and this person was entirely unable to do any of them or even understand what I was talking about and um, got up to leave the room to do something. And I felt this small voice inside me say to me, please get me out of here. You know, and I said to her, I put my hand on my chest and I said out loud to her, I'm going to get you right out of here. And by the time that person came back in the room, I was dressed and sitting on the edge of the bed. And I said in a very clear voice, just want to let you know that the romantic and sexual aspect of this relationship is over <laughs> and it's got nothing and you're lovely, but I need to get her out of here now because this is yeah. a really bad environment for her to be in. And she's my responsibility. Um, she's my responsibility because I, and for reasons I will never know, I was given stewardship over this one and I've got to go take care of her now. And I wish you well, where's my coat? You know, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that. And now if this were 20 years ago, I would have stayed in that for, I would have put myself through years more of that. Um, but I just, I'm quicker now to be like, oh no, this is a tanking situation, not a thriving situation. And I also know that I, I can leave, I can leave people, I can leave situations, I can leave places because I know that I can create a warm and loving environment for Liz. So I don't need to stay anywhere. <laughs> and when I was younger, I didn't know that. I thought I needed to stay here to get warmth. I needed to stay there to get love. I needed to stay here to get an affirmation. I don't need to stay jack shit fucking anywhere. Like I can do this. I can really provide for her. Um, you know, and I don't mean provide, I can provide for her materially, but I mean, I can, I can take really good, friendly care of this being who has been put into my hands. And then I can choose where to go, when to leave. And it's such a different world than the one I was in a quarter of a century ago, where mm -hmm. all of that had to come from the outside. And all of that had to come from the approval of my family, my spouse, my neighbors, my friends. And, um, and, I, and that voice was banging, saying, please get me out of here. Please get me out of here. And I was suffocating her saying, you cannot exist. <laughs> Shut up. Go back in your hole. <laughs> yeah. I'll bring you a crust of bread at midnight, you know, like, and now I, she, now I'm like, oh, sweetheart, let's go. You know, where do yeah. you want to go? Where do you want to go, baby? Let's get out of here. It's like, I'm my own Thelma and Louise. <laughs> <laughs> Is there, um, you know, we as readers of your work have been able to sort of watch that progression. You know, we like slowly you've taken us on this journey of the last however many years. And I was wondering today as, you know, I feel like I didn't um, awaken for lack uh, of a better term um, until five or six years ago. And with every passing year, I feel like um, that evolves. And I just, I've heard so many women talk about, oh man, when you turn 40 or when you turn 50 or um, God bless Oprah for every five years, she's like, oh, 60 is the year. Or, you know, mm -hmm. like every time she turns a new age, she tells us like, oh, this is the decade you're actually going to love the most. Um, but I was wondering, do you think that's age or do you think that's, you are slowly building the foundation of who you're going to become, but maybe it takes until a certain point before you have the courage. I think it's the same to. thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it just takes a really long time to learn how to operate a self. 
Um, <laughs> and and like it. it takes a really long time. It's we are complex organisms, you know. Yeah. It's taken me a really like when I was able to say to that person who I was in love with, "This is how you take care of a Liz." The only way I was able to do that was because I finally have figured out, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know. But like, how can you even tell someone how to take care of you when you don't know how to take care of you? And how can you possibly know how to do that when you're younger? It takes. We are so, the most complex organisms that we are aware of in the universe, apart from the universe itself. And it takes a minute to figure out how to drive one of these things. <laughs> you know, that's why you have to have that incredibly merciful attitude of good guess, good guess, good guess. And you, you know, if you're a genius, you, I guess you learn by other people's mistakes. <laughs> but I'm not that kind of genius. <laughs> I'm just barely smart enough to learn from my own, right? And so you've got to accumulate a lot of those kind of like bumper, you know, like, whoops, whoop, back, oops, sorry, nope, this, thought it was this, but it's that, you know, oh, I thought this was a parachute, but it's a backpack full of bricks, <laughs> okay? <laughs> oh, I thought you were my salvation, but you are going, we're going to be tied up in divorce court for three years. Shit, that was a good guess. Yeah. But no, you know, yeah. um, it takes, it takes a minute. Um, and so, you know, I think unless you're really not paying attention, unless you are almost willfully not paying attention, you know, um, I think you cannot help but get wiser as you get older. And I think there's no way to not get happier as you get wiser. Um, so it's, it's, and it just goes in complete opposite. It's like opposite day to the terror, the terrifying story that culture tells you as a woman about what your best years are and what your best worth are. Um, you know, and, and that's just hilarious to me at this point. You know, it's like, who would ever sell anybody a story that, you know, you, when you're youngest and dewiest and your neck looks the best is when you're going to be the happiest. <laughs> right. right. You know, that's crazy. crazy. That is crazy. literally psychotically crazy yeah. because you all you have to do is talk to young women yeah. and talk to old women yes. to get the true story. Yes. <laughs> I was at no, an no. event recently and a woman, a lovely young woman raised her hand and she said, I've got a question for you. I'm 21 years old. And I just, I just said, Oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's going to get so much better. I had to be 21 once too. Like we all have to get through it. But you'll get through it, and someday you'll be yeah. fifty, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah, just get, get to that place. Uh, I want to be cognizant of and respectful of your time, so I will, because I, I would just like to talk to you for the next eighteen hours, but that feels weird. Um, <laughs> so I want to ask a question that's pretty selfish, because I don't know that this will help listeners, which is always my intention with the podcast. But it's very rare that I get to speak to another author who had something you had eat, pray, love. And I had a similar experience and I just don't ever get to speak to someone about what it feels like to accidentally create something that went, I mean, I don't, I don't, maybe you didn't accidentally create, I never in my wildest dreams, like 10 people read my books before this one book. Right. Uh -huh. And, um, just, it was, it's such a unique experience that so few people have. and what I'm curious and I love, 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 I'm going to stop nerding out and referencing big magic, but I love you talking about, um, uh, was it to kill a mockingbird? And you wish that she had written like a crime story and a everything. So she would sort of have shaken off the success of this thing mm -hmm. and been able to continue to create. Mm -hmm. So I would just love to hear what it has felt like for you to navigate because I find myself in um, the joke is I never wanted writing to be my job. It was always my love. It was mm -hmm. always my passion. It was always this mm -hmm. nerdy thing that I did and 10 people read my books and I freaking loved it because if they sucked, if they were awesome, I it wasn't, I was just creating to create mm. and suddenly something became so successful that now that thing became my identity. Right. And then you sort of get in this snowball of everyone wanting you to be that thing or wanting you to create more of this thing. And you're and like, I don't even know how I did it that time. <laughs> I don't know. How I, <laughs> I can't repeat it. I don't know how I did it the first time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what has it felt like for you to navigate? And I feel like it, at least from the outside, 
um, I've loved watching your career, you know, now I'm going to do fiction and now I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you about creativity. Now I'm going to do fiction again. And I have to assume that when you had the success of Eat, Pray, Love, that everyone just wanted you to do the next Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah. Um, which I, you know, I would have been happy to do if I knew how, you know, I, I I mean, like it's all accidental. Um, you know, I think in a weird way, just directly to you, I, I would say that you, um, you're fortunate because you already have the experience of writing something that only 10 people read and having that be perfect. So, yes, you know, in your body, you have a bodily psychological memory of what it feels like to make something that people don't care about and for you to be yeah. awesome. So, yeah. that itself should be or could be, if you focus on that, an amazing piece of liberation, which is to say, I can go do again whatever I like. And I know that if, so I had the same thing, like my first book of short, whenever people come to me and say, I loved your first book. I'm like, pretty sure you're talking about Eat, Pray, Love, which was my fourth book. You know, I'm pretty sure you didn't love my small literary collection of short stories that 11 people have read, you know, but I loved it. Um, I loved it. And, and I also was fine with, with, with hardly anybody reading it. So that puts you in a better situation than Harper Lee, um, because that, because to Kill a Mockingbird was her first book. So anybody who has like huge success straight out the gate, I feel like that is an, an enormous obstacle because they don't have that experience of knowing what it feels like to do stuff that nobody cares about and you just do it because you like doing it. Um, so one thing I would say is that it sounds to me like um, your writing prior to your explosive success was your medicine um, and that it was something that you did because it made you feel well, as we were discussing about that, the low hum of well-being that just feels good, right? So, and this I'll put out there to anybody, for a lot of us, for many of us, creativity was our first medicine. Um, and, and a lot of us who grew up as anxious people, and I was a really anxious kid, my creative outlets were my first medicine. So writing was a place that I went to because I could disappear into it I could have a holiday from having to be myself. I could forget, you know, I, I'd look up a couple hours passed and, and I got to spend, I mean, this is the greatest gift in the world. I got to spend a few hours not thinking about myself, you know, like, <laughs> and that is like, there's no greater peace you will ever have than not thinking about yourself, right? So our so creative endeavor is part of the reason that it's so medicinal. It's one of the great gifts that the universe has given to humanity is that when you are making something creative, you get a reprieve from having to think, having to worry, having to be. Um, so if if you're one of these people where where creativity was your first medicine, and then you know generally what happens is that usually around adolescence, we discover the medicines that culture has created, which are shortcuts to well-being. So that's when we discover sex and substances and shopping and other things that begin with S. Um, and we start to use that to medicate ourselves or success. You know, we, we, we grow into that and we put the creativity aside. Um, but if you, if you were using creativity as your medicine and then it became something that was marketed um, and then it became something that was like your career, my suggestion to you is that you find another thing to do that is creative purely because it's fun. Um, so you're going to need new medicine because once yeah, your medicine cool. becomes market, the market goes out in the marketplace, which means people have opinions about it. And then there's other people's tied to its success and you've got agents and you've got editors and you've got um, followers and you've got brand, I don't know, whatever, like there's like this whole thing around it. Your medicine it's not that it's become corrupted. It's perfectly fine. It's a lovely gift what happened to you. And it's a lovely gift what happened to me. It's just that now you need a different medicine because mm. everybody needs to have something in their life that they can do that has no stakes, um, no stakes whatsoever. And so instead of me trying to coach you to get back to the way you used to feel about writing when it was innocent, go find something else that's innocent. So for me, after Eat, Pray, Love, it was gardening. Um, mm. And I had moved to a big house that had a beautiful backyard and I didn't write. There was probably, before I wrote the final draft of Committed, there was probably a year and a half where I didn't write a word. Because um, I, I literally didn't know how to. Um, I didn't know how to write in the aftermath of Eat, Pray, Love. So I just, put it, I just put it away. And I was willing to also accept the fact that maybe I was done writing. You know, maybe my whole journey had been so that I could write this book that seemed to help a lot of people. And then maybe I was done and I could go be, I don't know, go to landscape 
landscaping school or something, or just do something different. And I was a hundred percent willing for that to be true. Um, and, and I decided to just spend a year making the most beautiful garden. And I did. And it was, it was in the autumn of the second year of the garden that all of a sudden, while I was sort of raking leaves and putting the garden to bed, that the first line of the book, what would become the book committed kind of floated down into my head. And I was like, oh, I see how I could write it. Okay, I got it. And then I just went and wrote it. And by all, by all calculus, the book that came after Replay Love was not a success. I mean, it was, if you, if I were, if I were a fortune 500 company and you were gauging me on my profit margins and how well I did on my next product, which thankfully I'm not, you know, something like 13 million people read Eat, Pray, Love. I think maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe we sold 500,000 copies of, of, of Committed. I don't know. And, um, and people didn't want it, you know, like they wanted Eat, Pray, Love and I, and that's fair. And, and I, you know, I had known people who would come up to me in tears, throw their arms around me, say, you are my favorite writer who has ever lived. Your work is the most important work to me in the entire world. I, I love and worship you. And I could say to them, have you read Committed? And they'd be like, no, I'm not interested in it. And I'm like, it's literally the sequel to Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> it's oh literally God. the sequel. And they're like, no, nah, I don't want it. And, and you can't make, <laughs> and I think that's hilarious. It's like, I can't pay people to read that book. You know, and, and but for so me, funny. it was a great victory because something had to be the book that came after Eat, Pray, Love or else I would never write again. And, um, yeah. and so once that book was out there in the world and people were like, nah, I don't want it. I was like, cool. Now I get to go back to writing whatever the fuck I want. Cause no one cares. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would tell you, get a hobby, get a hobby that doesn't have any, any financial or emotional stakes to you. Um, and then, you know, you'll, something's going to have to be the next thing and people will have yeah. their opinions about it, but then you'll be free. And you're kind of yeah. free the whole time apart from the mind games. <laughs> yeah. no, I love that. I am so grateful. I'm so grateful for the time. I'm so grateful to get to look you in your eyes, even through a screen and, oh. and your wisdom. And I know that uh, the audience is going to be incredibly blessed by it as well. So thank you so much. You're for welcome, taking honey. <laughs> but just assuming that someone's living under a rock and they don't know where to find you online, what's your favorite place to hang out with people online? Instagram. I'm at Elizabeth underscore Gilbert underscore writer because I was a late adapter to Instagram. As you can see. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but you can find me there. I've got, you know, I got a website. You just type my name in and Google, something. just Google. Something. It'll take you somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And the latest book is called city of girls, city of girls. Yep. It's a novel city about, it's a fun rollicking. If you need escape, from um, if you're feeling a lot Which of anxiety, do, um, right now. it is a very light, very fun, very sexy story about a young woman who moves to New York City in the 1940s and goes on a goes on a promiscuity bender with a bunch of showgirls and um, and is writing about it from her old age with a lot of pride. Um, so yeah, you can check that out. <laughs> it's it's truly a tonic if you need to not be thinking about pandemics. <laughs> Liz Gilbert, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, and I love. hope that um, someday we get to meet in real life. Oh, I hope so. I hope all of us get to someday meet each other again right? in real life. But it <laughs> remember that when people could meet each yeah. other. Remember well, take, places. Take care, sweetheart. Thank you for having <laughs> me on and um and have fun with your new low stakes hobby. And um yeah. and it's all gonna be all right. <laughs>